Blog Talk Radio. about living from your heart with awareness and purpose, 
But that can be difficult when we've been programmed with beliefs that don't always allow us to fully engage so we're able to grow and thrive. So how do we figure out exactly what those beliefs are that are holding us back and what to do about them? We're going to find out in a few moments, so stay tuned to learn how you can both live your purpose and lead an extraordinary life. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio and the founder and CEO of the Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products to choose from, so you can listen whenever and wherever you want. Just download the title you prefer, free of charge, and start listening when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. That's audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. What a treat we have in store. My guest is Darren J. Gold, a managing partner at the Trium Group, where he advises and coaches CEOs and leadership teams at many of the world's most innovative companies, including Roche, Dropbox, Lululemon, Sephora, Cisco, eBay, Activision, and Warner Brothers. He is the author of the new book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life, which is the topic for discussion this evening. Welcome to the show, Darren. Thank you so very much for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? I am wonderful uh, and being wonderful, and it's always a choice, and I'm, I'm choosing to be <laughs> wonderful, and it's great to be on the show with you, T. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for catching the being. <laughs> Many people do not. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed your book for so many reasons, the main one for me being you offered new ideas that are steeped in science, validated by current research on psychology and how the brain functions, and your own personal stories, which added a lot of wit and humor and really allows the reader to relate quite easily. And while I myself am not technologically astute as far as owning a cell phone and texting is concerned. You use computer metaphors frequently, which I do understand. And of course, this engages the younger members of society who are completely immersed in technology. So your book speaks to all ages and it's very easy. And I found to read a, a very quick read as well. Having said all that, what was the catalyst for you writing this particular book? The most immediate catalyst was um, I'm blessed to have three wonderful children. My oldest, two and a half years ago, was going to college, and I sat down to write a letter to him, uh, which was my own humble attempt to offer some words of wisdom. And the the sort of letter just flowed out of me uh, and became these uh, principles, I guess, for living a good life. And I sent it around after I gave it to him, of course, to – a few friends and clients that I work with. And before I knew it, they had forwarded on and it had been read by within a matter of week, like weeks, like thousands of people. So I knew there was something that was sort of deeply resonating for people. And uh, one of my aspirations for a long time had been to write a book. And so I thought maybe the seeds of the book are in this letter. And that was really the inspiration and sort of the construct for the book, um, at least for the first draft of the book, I, I sort of 
deviated a bit beyond that to get to the final book that was written, but that was the inspiration. That is really cool because the letter you wrote to your son kind of went viral. <laughs> yeah, it did without even, you know, uh, expecting it to or, or trying. And so whenever that happens, I think, you know, I, I've got to pay attention or one should pay attention when that happens. Yeah. And uh, uh, I did. And, and it was uh, it really sort of catalyzed this uh, this idea. I think the, the sort of deeper, perhaps, uh, reason for writing the book was I spent the a big chunk of my career really asking and answering the big questions of life. And I certainly don't have, you know, the ultimate answers to any of those questions, but I have done a a lot of work on myself uh, and to collect all of the incredible wisdom out there and some skill and and talent that I'm proud to recognize for being able to synthesize a lot of different material and books have changed my life. And I really wanted to be able to give that uh, gift that I've received from so many wonderful books back to uh, to people and do it in my own unique way. So that that was sort of the broader reason for writing it. And you did a great job with that as well. As I said, it's a very interesting, Thank easy, you. and quick read. Now, I had to read it extra quick because it's for the show. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, most people will read it and actually do the things. But I was able to and am able to implement many of the things into my life. And when I, I, I one part of the book, when it said, you know, uh, when you picked up this book, what did you think? Did you think, oh, I probably know half of this stuff. Oh, I know all of this stuff. I don't need to read this or <laughs> I can't wait to dive in. And I was like, yeah, I saw the cover and I thought, no, I want this book. I have to have this book because you can always learn something from everyone regardless of the topic you may think you know all of it some of it but somebody says something in a different way and all of a sudden your perspective changes and you get a new a whole new look on things you know and it it helps us to move forward so I think that um, I'd like to get to some of the questions that I think many of us wonder about the first one, because people asked me this as I was discussing your book with people, was, well, okay, if you work really hard, I've always been told if you work really hard, I'm going to be rewarded and, and succeed. And, and I laughed when someone said that to me because I thought, yeah, I don't really believe that's true at all. <laughs> I mean, I know people, <laughs> and myself included, and many others, who've worked so hard to achieve the best results, only to find that things were nowhere near as successful, if at all, really, as they should have been. And then... We see other people who, and this is kind of crass to say, but, you know, they step in shit and come up smelling like roses seemingly every single time. And you wonder why. What do the rest of us need to be aware of to get the results we expect and, quite frankly, deserve for the effort expended? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm the first to uh, admit that luck plays a big role, right? Mm. (laughs) You don't (laughs) acknowledge that work. I think you're kidding yourself, uh, and to be okay with that. So here's yeah. what I would uh, say in response to that, which is, you know, um, that is a phenomenon, right? Some people that we think don't deserve, you know, success, however that's defined, achieve it, and others that we think are totally deserving of it don't. Um, that is a phenomenon. How we make meaning of that phenomenon is a choice. You know, one person right. go, how unfair is that? Life sucks. I'm, it's hopeless, right? Why even bother? Somebody else could yep. say, that's totally great. Um, whoever, you know, achieves success, what a wonderful thing. And, you know, for me, what's most important is the effort that I put into it, regardless of the outcome. Two totally different meanings. And I say, oftentimes, um, the human superpower is the ability to choose the meaning that we give to our circumstances. So I almost look at it slightly differently, which is to say, um, 
you know, uh, start with this really incredible ability that we have as human beings to see our circumstances, however they might turn out, in a way that really serves us as in, and is empowering. Because oftentimes the way things turn out are different than the way that we'd like to, uh, like them to, or that we hope them to or expect them to. Um, somebody once said to me, which I think is a wonderful, you know, saying, which is trade your expectations for appreciations and the, the world will change. Um, so a lot of my book is the sort of this essence of we are meaning making machines as human beings. And it's our responsibility and opportunity to choose the meaning we give to our circumstances. One final thing I'd say, and the, I think the most powerful example of this is uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote an incredible book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, who, and it was the story, his story of being a, a prisoner in a, in an, uh, in a Nazi uh, death camp. And he recognized, even in the worst of circumstances, he had the ability to choose the meaning he gave those circumstances, and he chose to flourish. So um, that, I think, is sort of at the heart of, uh, of, of what I write about and I think what matters most. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, and I think a lot of it is also gratitude. We do a lot of uh, shows with gratitude, and I'm big on that. And it's, I yep. don't care how rough or horrible the situation is, there's always, always, always something for which to be grateful. And people don't believe it until something happens that is horrific, and they realize, oh, yeah, there is something to be grateful for, like you're still here, you're still breathing, you know, right. whatever it is. Yeah, you, you can find something. And your book, all of this that, that we're talking about in the book is very, um, it, it's easy to, it's, let's see, it's simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and when I you think, go into yeah. a computer program and you make a change, it's immediate. You can go into the code, make a change, go back to the page and, oh, look, it works. Yay. We're all done. Everybody's happy. Yeah. But because we're human. And without going through a frontal lobotomy, how immediate is the change in ourselves when we change our program? Well, I'd say there are parts of it that are, are, are massive and immediate and parts that take, you know, the rest of our lives. Um, I, I write in the book a lot about mastery and mastery being a path mm -hmm. that never ends, right? So this path is a never-ending path, right? We never get to the the you know, the golden land uh, where everything is working perfectly, right? And I think just to understand that and to appreciate that the joy of it all is to be on the path, not the sort of end, you know, the end destination. Um, there's part of it that I think can be totally transformational for people, right? I, I offered the beginning of the book, and it's the thing you've been alluding to, this notion, this distinction between a program and a code. Uh, and what I, def I define them as, a, as follows. I say, you know, we all have programs, and a program is a set of safety-based, subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. Um, this idea that over the course of our life, mostly in our childhood, we construct these beliefs, values, and rules. They're primarily designed to keep us safe, but really uh, are limited in their effectiveness, especially as we become adults and are living more complex lives. Um, the very notion that I have a program, that most of it was made up, if not all of it, um, and that because it was made up, I can reconstruct any single part of it. For me, it's my own experience and, and with working with others, just realizing that was a game changer for me. I began to see myself, others in the world, totally differently with so much more possibility. And I say, you know, 
somewhere in the book that I was almost 40 years old when I discovered that I was living a life run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And when mm. I realized that and the absurdity of it, right, that here I was, a father of three children, um, you know, living a, a complex and somewhat rewarding life, a quite rewarding life, um, but running my life without even knowing it based on a set of rules that were designed by a child, you know, designed to keep him safe, it was like, oh, my God, wow. And so part of my answer to your question is a lot can change in an instant. And then the real work begins, which is, okay, I have this choice. I can author a code, which is a consciously chosen set of beliefs, values, and rules that's purposefully designed to lead to extraordinary results. How do I do that? And that's where the real work begins, and that takes some time. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the immediate changes are, I refer to them, and I don't know how other people think about aha moments, but it's like that aha moment, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you see things totally differently, and it stays with you, so it's a permanent change. It's not like it's something you think yeah. and you walk away and then you never do it. It is permanent. When that aha moment happens, it's permanent. So I kind of equated that as I was going, you know, as I was reading along and I was, I was thinking, okay, as I'm going through this book and I'm reading these chapters and everything, the aha moments can, we have choices to make them and we can make them deliberately or we can just wait and have them come along. And sometimes that happens, you know, yes. just through life experience, uh, you know, that's just the way that, that the world works. But I think it's interesting that when you did say in your book, you know, I was 40 years old before I realized that my program was written by a seven-year-old. That's probably appropriate because you're going to college, you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, you have kids. You're so busy with all of that. It isn't until you're about 40 or 45 that the kids are old enough. You can look back and say, wait, what? <laughs> There's got to be more. I'm, I'm aiming toward retirement and it's coming quickly. If I look back, where did those 20 years go? You know, here we are in 2020, it was only 20 years ago we were concerned about is all the computers going to, you know, junk out at the, at the millennium. And it doesn't seem like it was 20 years. So I think that was an appropriate age for that. That's like an awakening. I think that happens across the board with a lot of people. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, it's what the psychologists call Jung called the noon hour of life, right? Where you have as much sort of life behind you as you do ahead of you. And you've got importantly to get into kind of a little bit of psychology, enough ego maturity, to begin to really take a hard look at yourself. Most people, myself included, don't have that, you know, a strong enough sense of self to begin to dissolve that sense of self. So much mm. of life is a building up of self to a point where it can, it's strong enough, there's enough foundation to begin to dismantle it. And um, what I mean by self is that we spend the first half of our life oftentimes, we can talk about how to accelerate this in a moment if you'd like, but the first half mm -hmm. of our life really building up self being psychologically safe enough to start to question ourselves. Um, and then the second half of life, if we're so lucky and so fortunate uh, to begin to really examine and shift and, you know, ease up on certain things, which can be um, life-changing and rewarding. And so, yeah, that oftentimes happens. There's a reason why they call it middle age. Um, but I think mm -hmm. you started to allude to this point of like, how can we accelerate that? Right. How do we right. have to wait either for a crisis moment or for half of our lives to, to, to go by? And uh, part of the reason for these for this book is um, to offer people to do that a little quicker. Yeah, it's a guidebook, really, to show them how they it can is. do that. And and I, you know, I like the order in which it is written because it makes sense. You know, and so some of the chapters that that I really liked and wanted to talk about 
you know, uh, because it is an acceleration process as you go through. But one in particular was your chapter on forgiveness, which is so, so, so necessary. This is an area I find with many of my patients to be quite difficult because many believe that forgiveness is condoning what someone did. And that is most certainly not the case. It's allowing us to let go so we can move forward. We can grow we can thrive. And I really liked your chapter. You were very open and clear on everything in it. It was a, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? Because I just, I really loved it. I thought it was a well-written chapter and I mean the whole book was, but that chapter was really, it did something. It hit something because I speak so often to this with many people. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was, you know, people asked me what was your favorite chapter to write, and I think it was this one because it's so deeply personal. And just for mm-hmm. your listeners, not to spoil the story, but it's a, you know, the time when I forgave my mother um, after you know forty years of holding um, a lot of resentment, uh, maybe borderline hatred, uh, for how I perceived I was treated and abandoned by my mother, and it happened in, you know, Folsom State Prison. I wasn't fortunately uh, in prison, but I was working inside the prison. And so it was this incredible setting for an extraordinary act of forgiveness that changed my entire view of uh, how important and powerful it is to uh, uh, unconditionally forgive. And I think what you mentioned, which is that does not mean that you're letting people off the hook or condoning Uh -uh. what they did that was wrong to you or not holding people accountable for the wrongs that they do, but forget, you know, not forgiving is an extraordinarily selfish act. Uh, and it doesn't serve uh, one. You think it does, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the letting go of that built up resentment and is incredibly liberating um, and incredibly, it's an incredibly mature and exquisite act of, um, of compassion and, um, and love. Uh, and uh, it's, I think, one of the most powerful things people could do. I, I agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting because a few years ago, I think it was, there's a nonprofit called um, the Fetzer Institute. And I, I think it was them. They did a survey that found 62% of American adults say they need more forgiveness in their personal lives. And, you know, Research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. So it certainly makes sense because you reap these huge rewards for lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, reducing pain, blood pressure, all that stuff, depression, anxiety, stress. And that's what forgiveness does. But so many people have, you know, they don't want to do that because they believe that they're letting someone off the hook. But it really is more of an active process to that you make a conscious decision to let go of negative feelings, whether the person deserves it or not, you know, and it, it releases anger and resentment and hostility so that you actually feel empathy and compassion for the person. And then yeah. everything gets better because it's all positive, you know, and studies have been done to, to prove all that. So it's very, very necessary to get that out there. I loved your chapter on forgiveness because it was so deeply personal and intimate and, I think it, it allows people to realize, oh, I can, if he can do that, I can, I can do this too. I get it now, you know, and yeah. I, that was very important to me, that chapter. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Um, and, you know, another chapter that you it was giving into micro feedback to people. And I, sometimes I laughed at this because I, 
<laughs> I had to. There was a lot of wit and humor throughout the book, so I was laughing a little bit. But you wrote, I try my best to find something in every situation to celebrate about the person I'm speaking to. And I find an opportunity to give constructive comments where I believe he or she can do better. Not because I want to be critical, but because I see the potential and wholeness of each person with whom I work. Now, I get that, and I think that's great. But do you do that every time you celebrate, or do you provide the constructive criticism at another time? I couldn't figure that out. Well, I think it's a bit of both, right? Because to always, and, and maybe the broader point, let me start there and then ask, answer your specific question. The broader point that you alluded to with your emphasis on the word and is that yeah. much of what we, what we, you know, the way we see the world isn't as an either or or black and white world where there's this sort of false set of mutually exclusive choices, right? So either I can celebrate people or I can be really tough on them, right? That's a, and I say that I introduced this notion of polarity thinking, which is the work of Barry Johnson, which suggests that much of the complexity in life is really not a set of either or um, choices where one choice is right and the other is wrong, but rather that um, many of the things that we encounter are, are, are healthy tensions where they're both possibly right, and that the wisdom lies in integrating the two. And so the best example I have of that is parenting, right? So you have one parent, if you're co-parenting, you have one parent um, that's extremely permissive, right, that really mm -hmm. believes that the best thing to do is to allow your children the freedom to you know, learn on their own, right, the sort of scraped knee kind of philosophy of, of parenting. And then maybe another parent that's really controlling, that believes it's important to set you know, type guidelines and parameters for what's acceptable that if, to, you know, if not, then they're going to learn that there's, you know, they can do whatever they want. And oftentimes as parents or whatever, you know, role we're in, we get stuck in this either or, am I, per, you know, permissive or am I controlling? And the reality is there's massive wisdom and benefit in being permissive and there's massive wisdom and benefit in being controlling. But if you over preference one pole to the neglect of the other, you'll experience the downside of that pole. And so, you know, my example I gave in the book was my, you know, polarity that I struggle with and have worked on for a number of years is I have a strong preference for challenging people. Um, and if you look at the opposite of that, it's celebrate, at least for me. And mm -hmm. I came to this, you know, this realization when I got introduced to polarity thing, I was like, wait a second, I've been stuck in this either or thinking. What if I were to practice integrating that tension where I could get the best of challenging people, high standards, excellence, holding people accountable, and the best of celebrating people feeling uh, honored and um, enthusiastic and empowered? And I don't have to experience the downsides of over-challenging, you know, where people get burned out and get deflated. And I certainly don't have to experience the thing I'm really afraid of, which is the downside of celebrating too much where people get complacent. That's the total game changer. So specific answer to your question is I, I try to genuinely find something worth celebrating and something where I can offer feedback that's a little bit more challenging, constructive in most of my conversations. Sometimes that feels a little forced and I'll just, uh, I'll just celebrate. I will try to do three times as much celebrating as I do challenging. I've gotten into a practice even recently uh, in my firm. Uh, we use um, a, uh, an app uh, called Slack, you know, that sort of goes to everybody where I offer one appreciation to one person every single day. And that's my leaning into this uh, side of the pole that doesn't come naturally for me. That's my practice. Well, I think that's great because when I 
confident, and, and I did, I'm not the only one that emphasized the word. It was in caps in the book. <laughs> That's why I read yes. it that way. And, <laughs> yes, you good. know, it wasn't just me. I was reading it from the book. Um, but yeah. when, when I read it, I thought, okay, has anybody ever given you feedback? Like, you know, geez, everything's great, and then all of a sudden, you know, nothing's ever good enough. And it almost came mm. across to me a little bit passive-aggressive. Like, okay, you're great, you're wonderful, but you're great. And I've had that happen in my life frequently. You know, you win an award, you show it to somebody, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's great, yeah. but you don't, you don't ever want to tell that person anything anymore because there's always that little bit of passive-aggressive behavior. It's like, wow, I can never just be good enough. And you give up on the person, mm. and you resent. And so I needed to know if that was something you do. But the fact that you do the appreciation, you know, that's important because I don't think people do that enough. We, we oftentimes hear when we do things that are not good, that are negative, that are construed as bad. But when yeah. we do something that affects someone and you didn't know you did it, you didn't know you did something that affected somebody in a good way. I really make it a point to, to make people aware that, you know, you said this to me the other day and I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, I just did it in a yoga class today. Two of the women that were there, I mm-hmm. said at the end of class, thank you both so much for coming in and respecting my meditation practice and, and putting your mats down quietly. Not everyone does that. And they just looked at me in shock, but it made a yeah, difference. That's such an important point you're making because I, I work with a lot of business organizations and I ask the question, I say, how many times do you praise people for the things that you want them to do? And like people are like not ever. And I'm like it's free. You can do it at <laughs> well, any time. If you want, if you want to see new behavior, praise people for the things that you want to see. You know, way more often than you criticize people for the things that you don't want to see. Um, it's just not a natural bias, and it goes to the underlying distinction of program and code. You might remember program is the safety based, right? We're looking for risk, right? That's how we are sort of constructed. And we have a strong negativity bias that has to be overcome with intentional practices. And one of the easiest practices, because it's available to us, is to give positive appreciation and get in the practice of doing it regularly so that when you do have to have the kind of tough conversations, you've built a reservoir of really good positive goodwill. Um, What I didn't mean to suggest was you know, when you have something to tell somebody, you sneak in a nice thing just to soften them up a little. Yeah, right? yeah. They'll know, they'll, know that they'll, they'll know that they'll read right through it. So yeah. I'm offering something <laughs> genuinely I appreciate, right? Oh, and they always see it from me. So it doesn't feel like it's just something to like, you know, mask um, what's really coming. Um, and so they, they, they're very, my team is very used to um, me really praising and doing it genuinely and always finding places for them to grow and uh, being very clear and clean about that kind of feedback. And they can see and feel when it's coming from a place of um, service and, and their best interests and when it's because I'm pissed off. And that never, never works. No. Yeah. And I no. like that you say coming from a place of service because in this life we really are in service to and with others. That's really yeah. what we're supposed to be doing when we're here. So being in service to them means not criticizing them and, and beating them to a pulp, but trying to help them because in every situation, we're both the student and the teacher. You just have to look at it and see where am I learning from this student and where am I teaching to, you know, to this student? It's both. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and and that, that makes it, that makes people understand when they understand you, 
you know, and people oftentimes when I'll say things to them, they just don't expect it because not many people will do it. Especially some people, this is a new yoga studio. I just started going there and, and they were like, oh, I didn't even know these women's names. I just knew they were the only two that ever came into the class and were quiet. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I appreciated it. So I wanted to let them know that. And maybe they'll tell yeah. others and, you know, pass it along. You just don't know because sometimes it will just like an epidemic go through the place, which is really, it's, yeah. it's a good kind of epidemic yeah. that you want, you know? Uh, so some totally. of these, I think the, one of the things that probably was the most difficult, okay, the one that I think is the hardest to do in the book is toward the end of the book. It's discovering your purpose. Now, mm-hmm. this can be quite challenging. And if you can't nail down your purpose, it's kind of hard to do the rest of the work. And, and for some, I mean, not everybody can be Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Oprah, but many people feel like they're just cogs in a wheel. And the true purpose, true purpose is only for the likes of the chosen few, if you will. So mm-hmm. if you're not doing things on a global stage, then you're not really providing a meaningful purpose. And finding your purpose can be intimidating and difficult. And I'm even going to say depressing for some people. Do you find that it's hard for people to discover their purpose and can you offer any tips on how they can do that? Yeah, it's one of the most common questions I get asked, particularly by younger people, you know, early parts of their career is this almost obsession with discovering, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? And I think that's very much this generation and it comes Mm -hmm. from the best of places. I really want to honor uh, that desire um, a few things I'd say. Number one, I think the, the Greeks said it the best, which is the, pur- every, the purpose is to live your, to your potential. The, you know, the, the, the notion uh, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, had around self-actualization. So if nothing else, right, if, if you embrace as your purpose as a human being to actualize your potential, you're 90, 90 maybe 99% of the way there. And so this book is really about this idea of self-mastery. How do I maximize my potential so my gifts are fully manifesting, regardless of what I do for work and is it directed in this way or in another, but that I've taken myself on in a way that's um, a path of self-mastery and on a path of really self-actualizing and being the best version of myself um, with respect to um, the people that I love and the people that are around me. If that's all you do in your life, man, that is, that's, that's awesome. So I'd say um, that's maybe one piece of advice is, is, is that alone. The second is, um, and I say this in the book, is uh, the more you obsess about discovering your purpose, the harder it is to be, it's going to be to discover it. Uh, that's the paradox. So part it of it is. is just letting go a little bit of this attachment to, I got to figure out my purpose and I got to figure out it now, or I can't live a fulfilling life. I, first of all, don't believe that to be the case. And I think second, it's going to have the counterproductive effect of um, not allowing you to see what it is that you're really meant to do. Um, and that really what, you're, what I would encourage people to do is to let go of the attachment to purpose and just be attuned to it. Some people, it shows up really early in life. My mm-hmm. middle child daughter discovered her purpose you know, as uh, a young child, uh, she's now studying musical theater in college, wants to go to Broadway. It's been who she is and what she was meant to do for as, as long as we can remember. And that happened really early. For me, it took almost four decades of my life to discover, um, you know, what I'm really meant to do. Uh, I wouldn't be so much in a rush. I would be uh, more inclined to be on this path of self-actualization and self-mastery. 
um, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, I'm more than four decades into my life, and I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure, it's, by the way, when true. I say I, I discovered it, I don't even know if I have. Like, you know, I'm not that right. obsessed with, like, the answer to that question. I'm, I'm really, I think if I have an obsession, um, and my, certainly my friends and family would say I do, it's this notion of really um, being on a path of mastery to be the very best version of myself. How can I be an extraordinary husband? How can I be an extraordinary father, an extraordinary brother to my sister, extraordinary friend to my friends, an extraordinary colleague to my colleagues, extraordinary in what I do in my work with my clients? If I can do that, and as an added bonus, I get the jackpot of, you know, really being confident. I've sort of nailed my purpose in life. Wonderful. But I don't need that. Um, and I think letting go of that need is actually what gives you the conditions for your true calling to emerge. And that may come at any moment of your life. It will come when it's supposed to. And your definition of purpose is wonderful simply because most people, I think, equate what is your purpose you know, I don't know why I'm here. What's my purpose? Equate it with a paying job. And that really doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with it. You know, it doesn't. If it, there are people who take pride in their job, no matter what the job is, where other people would look down their nose and say, well, I don't want to sweep the streets. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. But if That's you right. do the very best at anything, any job you have, you do the best at it to your ability that you can do you will find that you do like what it is because you're giving it your all and finding something within it that you like. Now, if it is something that you absolutely hate and you had to take the job, take it until you find something that you do like that offers you a bit of something that gives you that creativity, that imagination, that ability to do what it is you feel good about. So it makes you feel purposeful and fulfilled. And I like that because a lot of people do equate it. I remember watching Oprah and having her say, you know, find your passion, do your passion. Find, and I'd yell at the TV and say, I don't know what my passion is, Oprah. What's my passion? How do you find it? Tell us how, you know? And yeah. I think she was trying to say the same thing. It's not necessarily what you get paid for. It's how you feel and what you do and how you, put, how you present yourself. What are the gifts that you have and how do you present them to the world? We all came in with gifts. How do you present them to the world? If you're mean and miserable and you're always trying to push somebody's buttons, And you know you can do something a lot more quickly than someone else and better and get it done fast, but you won't do it because you know it pushes their buttons. You know, you're mean. You're just mean. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, And right there, it's like, yeah, all bets are off. Yeah. A couple couple things I'd say to that. I think it's sort of spot on. You know, one is, you know, that we are now in a new paradigm where I think the, the latest research is suggesting that people entering the workforce for the first time this year will have somewhere between 13 and 17 jobs. So this idea that you have to figure out, you know, what your purpose is and to do mm. the kind of meaningful work you were destined to do, right, you know, right out of the gate is, is crazy. I would say um, take a bunch of different jobs, two years, three years, go down this path, that path. That's going to be the experience set that you need to really understand what it is that you love to do. And, and I think, you know, most people have, have the opportunity to find something where they can manifest their purpose in their work at the same time, but it may be after your fifth or sixth job, and that's sort of a, a new norm. The second thing is, you know, and you started to touch on this, but you know, wherever it is on your path to figuring out what your what your calling is, um, you have this superpower, you know, that I mentioned at the outset of like giving meaning to your circumstances. Have you ever gone into a grocery store 
and you've, you've gotten in line and you get to the checkout person and that person just lights up your world. They've got mm-hmm. a radiant smile on their face. Um, they view you, you know, they interact with you as if you're a close family friend. Um, they are just wonderfully generous in how they greet you and how they treat you. And you can go to the same store a day later with a different person who is approaching that job in a totally different way. And, you know, their life circumstances actually may be the same or the person that's showing up in that wonderful way may have much harder circumstances than the person who doesn't. And this really does go to this point of like, we get to choose how we show up every single day, not to suggest it's easy, um, but that we have that choice. And a lot of my book is about, you know, either directly or indirectly giving you um, the tools to make that choice more consistently and more effectively. Yeah. And so in, Having said that, what would you suggest? Is there something, is there anything right now that somebody could just take and start right now to help them before the book comes in the mail that they are ordering? <laughs> yes, totally. So I'm going to suggest kind of two or three things, very practical. Sure. Number one is there is um, one second in your day that is the most important second of your day. And that's the very second that you regain consciousness from sleep. Um, and what you choose to do in that second can change your life. And I don't mean that, I don't mean to exaggerate that point because it's, I've seen it in my own experience and the experience of a lot of people that I work with. Um, what I choose to do literally the moment I wake up, I don't check my phone. I don't think about how tired I am. I don't hit the snooze button. I don't do all the things that my body kind of wants to do if I haven't gotten enough sleep and I really work on that. I choose to say two things. One is thank God I'm alive. And two is this is going to be an amazing day. And I match that with my body. I stretch and I put a big smile on my face. It literally takes three or four seconds. The very first thing I do when I gain consciousness in in the morning is that that's a practice anyone, anywhere, in any circumstance can do. And I do it in a way where I genuinely believe it, right? Because you can't fake these things, right? Right. so that's like one. You want an easy thing? Like everybody can do that. You do that consistently for 30 days and then see what you, you know, test it for your own experience. Don't believe a word I say. Um, <laughs> the second that's a little bit of a, a, um, a bigger commitment, but very doable. And I've written an article about this is, you know, 10 minutes that can change your life. And I really advocate that people adopt a daily ritual. You look at the extraordinary people in the world, most of them, if not, you know, the vast, vast majority of them have daily rituals. And I like the very short story of Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, who the very early part of his career decided that he was going to, and declared that he was going to write a new joke, good or bad, every single day, and that he would never break the chain, meaning he would never not, you know, um, do it. He would never miss a day. And so I often say that the act of doing something every single day without exception, never negotiating, never missing, is in and of itself a life-changing event or practice and is the evidence of an extraordinary person. So I often say get up 10 minutes earlier than you would. Right? If you've got to get up at 6.15, get up at 6.05, use that 10 minutes. It almost doesn't matter what you do, but you never violate that commitment to yourself. And for me, I do a, a gratitude practice. I do a a little loving kindness meditation. Uh, I get clear about my values um, and how I'm going to express them in the day. And I, um, and I say my identity statement, which is really important. Um, and that's my practice. And I never miss it. 
and you want to change how you show up. You want to be the supermarket clerk that shows up and people are like, oh my gosh, what does she have for lunch? I want some of that. (laughs) Um, That is a practice. And then the third thing is what you do with your body because your body is going to shape how your mind interprets your environment. Um, There's the obvious things around diet, sleep, and exercise. I can't overstate the importance of those. Um, But there's some simple things you can do with your posture, with your breathing, with your facial expressions that can really prime your body um, to make sure your mind is at its best because your body's sending one of two unmistakable signals to your brain. Either I'm safe or I'm in danger. And you can use your body to impact and influence that signal so that it's sending the majority of the time a signal that you're safe and you can be at your best. I think those are great tips and I do many of them, you know, and I think a lot of people do just, just to, you know, just to make the day good because we know you have to, you have to get up knowing the day is going to be a great day. Now, sometimes it's not, but you know, you went into it with a good frame of mind. You won't react the same way when things come up. However, in the, in the remaining time that we have, I want to ask you a couple of questions that aren't necessarily related to the book, but kind of are, do you believe everything happens for a reason? Um, how's this for an evasive answer? Um, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I say yes because I'm like, you know, I, I do believe in, you know, this connectedness, right, uh, of in the universe. And that's sort of a spiritual orientation I have, which suggests I'm far less important than I might think I am. So the only reason I would say yes is I just want to highlight uh, that, that there's something higher, uh, and whether it's a religious thing or a spiritual thing, I think is sort of less important than to, to have an appreciation of the possibility that I'm connected to everything in the universe. Um, and, and then the no is because I'm a big believer that we've got agency. And Mm -hmm. uh, I like this idea of whatever happens, I get to control how I interpret and make meaning of it. And I'm going to always choose to interpret it in the most empowering and positive way. Uh, so, but that's, I think the, the idea of like things happen for a reason, there's the there's slippery slope and the danger in that is like, eh, I don't have any control. It's sort of like going to happen. And I think that's an easy place to slip into. And I think we give up a lot of our power and, and agency and choice uh, in that orientation. And I kind of look at it like, okay, things happen for a reason because we need to learn and grow. So it's our choice Mm -hmm. to make it good or to make it bad. So whatever it is, it's like it's our choice. What is our choice when we're going through anything, anything from, you know, cancer to, you know, a divorce to uh, getting a new job that you love? Why, why at that point in time did I get that offer when I just took another job? Now I want that one. You know, everything happens for a reason to me because you had to learn something along the way. So I kind of look at it that way a little bit. I think we're um, saying something very similar. So said I that think so way. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah. Now, do you believe in timing? Because, you know, we can accelerate the process in your book, but Sometimes things just don't work when we want them to because it's not the right time, but you'll find that two or three years later, what we wanted all of a sudden is happening. And you're like, Oh wow, here it is. Do you, do you believe in that, that there's a, that there's there's a thing about timing and when things need to occur? I, I do. I, you know, say kind of, I allow for the possibility of that to be true. Right. Because uh, I Mm -hmm. think there is something about like synchronicity 
And one mm-hmm. of my favorite books is Joseph Jaworski's book of that title. Um, and I think he, he um, describes it as like this cubic centimeter of chance or something like that. And that, you know, that there's something about sensing and being on the lookout for when we see this perfect coming together. Um, when you put the sort of your, your intention into the universe, that the universe will give you, provide you this sort of synchronicity um, that you have to be attuned to. So if, that, if, if that's sort of what you're alluding to, I, 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 I have through my experience just been awed by um, when I'm really clear and have put a strong commitment into the world that things tend to line up. And I, my job is to be on the lookout for when they do and to act uh, in that cubic centimeter of chance when it, when it appears. Yeah. And I think too, that we, we're meant to get what we're going to get when we're ready to get it. It's for our growth because mm-hmm. we have things to learn. Yeah. So even if, even if we think we're ready, you know, the universe probably might think we're not. And sometimes the universe is amusing. I don't think so, but I'm sure the universe does. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not laughing, yeah. but the universe yeah. I can picture. You're really laughing, aren't you at this? You know, but I, I do think I do think that that is part of it as well. And as we get to the top of the hour, I want to ask you, are there any closing thoughts or anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk uh, a lot about identity. I, I alluded to it briefly in that sort of identity right statement. But I think, yeah, one of the most um, important beliefs you have, the, one of the parts of your program that's most important to examine are the beliefs you have about yourself. And I call that your identity, that we all have an identity. Um, we probably don't know what it is, uh, but the most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. So if you want an extraordinary life, you've got to have an extraordinary identity. And one of the most profound and powerful practices is to construct an identity um, that's going to really serve you, that's going to naturally lead you to take the set of actions that will lead to the kind of results that you want. No guarantee, but they'll significantly raise the probability of that happening. So if you're planning to you know, get and read the book, I, uh, I'm excited about you reading that part in particular because it has been very powerful in the you know work I've done on myself and the work I do with others. May I read your identity? You can say no. No, please do. Okay. This is yours. I am an extraordinary leader, coach, author, husband, father, son, brother, colleague, friend. I command my mind and body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact the lives of others. I loved that. And, Thank you. you know, and you say, write your own and put it in your car and, and scream it if you want as loud as you want in your car. So I did, and I don't remember mine because I just wrote it today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I stole a lot yeah. from you. <laughs> Good. That's what it's meant for. And, uh, yeah, I think so I stole the last nice. sentence from you. <laughs> Good. That's great. <laughs> Well, you're doing a wonderful job in, in, uh, in living that already, so that shouldn't be too hard for you. No, just trying. That's all, just trying. We're all works in progress, right? We are. <laughs> but Indeed. We are almost out of time, Darren, but before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they may learn more about you and where they may purchase your book, Mastering Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life? Yeah, um, Master Your Code is available on Amazon in all formats, hard cover, paperback, uh, Kindle, and Audible. I narrate the book. Um, so if you go to Amazon, that's the best place to find it. 
And then I have an, a website, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D. And if you go on that, you'll be prompted to join my mailing list. And I uh, regularly communicate with, uh, with people on that. So that's a great resource. Well, thank you so very much for joining us. If you just stay on the line while I do the outro, I'll, I'll speak to you in just a few minutes. But I really appreciate you being here. I know you're busy, and I absolutely enjoyed myself thoroughly. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I did, too. Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. This is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting, including my sound healing concerts and labyrinth walks. Please check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need. 100%. We are run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries, stipends, or compensation of any kind to anyone. You'll learn about our fundraising campaigns, and you can see exactly where the money goes and how it helps kids in need. At Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. Thank you for taking time to visit our site. SojiHuggles.org. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio and at Soji Huggles. And please like us on Facebook at Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. I am your host, T Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. <laughs>